Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Today, we are thrilled to present a very special show, an extended episode that takes place at the intersection of American history and the American present. Unless you've been living under a rock, which is totally cool, we're down with that. By now, you have heard the results of a murder investigation that has gripped the country for the last two years. As strange, convoluted, and intense as the trial itself was these past few months, so too was the intensity of its ending. Alex Murdoch, convicted of the murders of his wife Maggie and son Paul, and sentenced to life in prison in one of the most spectacular falls from grace the justice system has seen in years. The twists and turns in this case were too numerous to count, and our heads are still reeling. But thankfully, we don't have to make sense out of it alone. Here to guide us through it all is none other than Crime Capsule's very own Lieutenant Rita Schuler, retired special investigator for the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, SLED, which handled the Murdoch case. For those listeners who may not know Rita, she was our second guest on the show, back when we were still just a little baby podcast first starting out. Rita's extraordinary journey in cracking a 40-year-old cold case in this same region of South Carolina served as the basis for her book, The Low Country Murder of Gwendolyn Elaine Fogel, A Cold Case Solved, a book which was published by the History Press back in 2021. If you haven't heard those episodes, let me encourage you to dig back into our archives and seek them out because they are truly riveting. And you'll hear echoes of that story today. You can find them on our show page at evergreenpodcasts.com or on your podcast provider. Either way, you'll hear Rita's crack investigator's instinct come right to the fore, right here, both then and now, as we dive deep into the downfall of Alex Murdoch. Rita, one of my absolute favorite things to say on this show is welcome back to Crime Capsule. We are so delighted to have you join us again on such an incredible week. Well, thank you very much, Ben. It is my pleasure to be here. So for our listeners who have not yet had the pleasure of your acquaintance, will you just tell us a little bit about your background and your career? Well, I was supervisory special agent for the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, which is known as SLED. And uh, I was supervisor of the forensic photography department. And I was a part of the crime scene investigation team. Now, crime scene investigators would go to the crime scene. I did not go to the crime scene unless... uh, photography, specialized photography was needed because they were trained in it. And what they did, they kind of went to the crime scene, gathered the evidence, processed the scene. They kind of brought the crime scene back into me, to the studio. And if they needed follow-up, specialized photography, I had my lab set up. I called it my little, little FBI lab, actually, because I went to the FBI and um, I had a three weeks course there and I came back and set up SLED's forensic photography department like that. So um, my my main duty was taking care of the evidence and back then 
we did 35 millimeter film. We didn't have the luxury of, of digital. So I had to develop the film. I had to um, print the film. And even some of the local agencies would send their filming to me from crime scene if SLED did not work on it. And, and I actually helped them with that too. So my main purpose was, and my main duty was to photograph evidence and work with the crime scene investigators to try and assist them to come up with the best photographs of um, like fingerprints, shoe prints, or anything off the evidence they brought back to me in the lab. And I had a lab where they could bring in, they could bring in their evidence then. I mean, they could bring in a door. It was that big a lab and, and we had to photograph any prints or or whatever they wanted me to photograph, um, trace evidence, fraction marks, anything of that nature. So I just took care of all the evidence that they would bring back from the crime scene. And this experience is something which over the course of the last several months as the, the trial of the century, as some folks have called it, um, you know, has gotten underway. I mean, you, I know you have a very real uh, reaction to some of the things that you've been watching as you followed uh, the trial. Now, before we get into the trial itself, you served at SLED for 25 years before your retirement. You're born and raised in the low country of South Carolina, and you have worked with state, local, sometimes federal officials in the line of duty. You know better than most what it was like to labor under this shadow empire of influence and so-called justice of the Murdoch clan. Tell us, what, what was it like working in, around, alongside, maybe not, you know, the right word, but uh, what was it like working in the shadow of the Murdochs? Well, from day one, when I went to SLED, and um, we did investigations, I guess the first scene that that SLED went to after I was uh, after I went to SLED and they brought all the film back to me and all the processing um, evidence that they wanted me to process and photograph. Uh, they told me about the Murdochs that they were the powerful family down there. They are in the Fourteenth Circuit. They are solicitors, and this started way back with. I don't know how many generations back, but that was always the, I guess, known that the Murdochs were powerful. They had a dynasty. They'd been there for years. And um, so when you get a case in here for the Murdochs, you know, we really need Fury to work on them. And that was just another thing for me. I mean, it didn't matter who they were because I took I mean, I took pride in everything that I did and every special uh, procedure that I needed to do, whether it was them or not. Let me ask you this. Um, I recall that you have described instances in which you would be invited to certain events and members of the sort of Murdoch clan, the extended Murdoch clan would be there sort of mingling with law enforcement and so forth. And um, you described this as sort of seeing that that 
old boy network or kind of feeling some unease about certain gatherings or official events where folks were getting kind of buddy-buddy. Um, you know, the South, as we know, is a very interconnected kind of place, but you more or less kept your distance from that, didn't you? You chose not to participate in many of those kinds of gatherings. You know, the reason I, I, I chose not to participate was mainly because um, I was a part of that crime scene team, and and all the investigators at SLED, they, they knew the Murdochs, and a lot of our guys hunted, and they loved to go hunting, and... Um, they were invited down to the Murdoch's cookouts and hunting, you know, for days and weeks. Well, being a part of the scene, they would tell me, Rita, you can go too, which I, I myself said, I really am not a hunter and I don't want to really be down there with all you guys. <laughs> so that's the reason I didn't go. It was not because of any prestige with the Murdoch family and the good old boy system. I just didn't want to go down there with all the guys. But I, I felt a little privilege for them asking me. And um, it, it wasn't back then as prominent as it is now, in my opinion. And um, because of this trial as well, I had no idea that all this was going on with Alex. And I, I really didn't know him because I, I mainly worked with his, it would have been his dad that was during the era that I worked at SLED. Let me ask you, June 2021 uh, was when Maggie and Paul uh, were killed, when Alex killed Maggie and Paul. Um, where were you when you first heard about this and what was your reaction? I was in my living room, and I got a notification from one of our local TV stations. And, and I do have that on my phone that I, I get uh, notifications when anything happens. And I just kind of looked at it, and I went, oh, my God. Well, my first thought was, and I had heard about the boat, you know, the boat crash. And my first thought was, Oh gosh, is somebody retaliating against the Murdochs because of the boat crash and how it was handled? And then I heard the statement of, we do not think there's any um, threat to the public. I think that was the way that they put it. And I, that's when I started thinking, I said, then they know pretty much who might have done this because we would say that a lot too in some of our investigations don't think it's any threat to the public because we pretty much know who done this we've just got to prove it and that was my first thought and i went oh god did alex do this himself and i at the time did not know that he had done all this financial stuff i learned that after SLED started investigating, and the social media, I mean, the news channels, they had it all on there. That's when I learned, and I said, huh. I said, yeah, he could do it. That is totally my opinion. I said, yes, he could have done this. And the next thing was, you know, being the Murdoch family, 
um, if they thought somebody else did this, you know, they put up that reward and they had a, what was it, a date that it was going to expiration date on it. And I said, that, I've never heard of that. Yeah, it's weird. I've never heard of that. <laughs> but being the Murdoch family, I thought they would have been camped on Sled's doorstep in the Attorney General's doorstep saying, you find out who killed Maggie and Paul. Who killed my beloved wife? Who killed my beloved son? But they didn't do that. That was not done. They didn't camp out. And and I, I think later on, I think Alex put up a reward too, him and Buster. And and I'm saying, you know, there's money again, but I just can't see them with their name too of not demanding find out who did this. That was not in the media hardly at all. It doesn't really pass the smell test, does it? You know something's off. That's a good way of putting it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a funny thing. You've got this, you know, remarkable insight, um, both as a trained professional and as a local, you know, which is so interesting to hear. Next time I get an APB on my phone or I'm watching TV and I hear someone say, you know, law enforcement say, you know, not a threat to the public. I think I'm going to know exactly what that means now. <laughs> and I really appreciate that as a tip. <laughs> that was used That was used a lot in some investigations. My guys would come back from the crime scene and they'd say, okay, we think it's this one person and they're not a threat to the public. And then, of course, you have to deal with the evidence and uh, see if it is that person. Everything you can do. Well, let me ask you, I know that it is uh, for sort of integrity of the investigation and so forth, you know, uh, your colleagues at SLED would not have been able to talk about things as they progressed. But as a resident of the area, someone who knows, you know, Southeast South Carolina and, you know, the low country so well, what have the past two years leading up to this trial? I mean, what have they been like at home? Folks must be talking about this in the diners, the, you know, the barbershops, the mom and pops, you know, it must be on everybody's mind, right? What is that? What has that been like? Absolutely. And here, you know, I'm 45 miles away from Walterboro. And I mean, after all this happened, it was, you're correct. That was the conversation. And everybody's kind of doing the Monday morning quarterback. And it was just conversation. If you got, if you went somewhere and didn't have anything to talk about, then you start talking about this, <laughs> the Murdochs being killed, Paul and Maggie being killed. If you didn't have anything to talk about, and um, it was just, I think it was kind of a shock that this has happened to this prominent family in Walterboro, South Carolina. There's, I mean, now it's taken over the nation. And the whole nation knows where Walterboro, South Carolina is now. I think I live about 45 miles from Walterboro and, and just about seven, eight miles out of Charleston, South Carolina, which everybody knows where that is. I'm thinking, and people have asked me, how far do you live from Walterboro? I'm thinking people are going to say now, um, okay, Johns Island is 45 <laughs> miles from Walterboro. 
you know, instead of being seven miles from Charleston. Right. You have so, you've put yourself on the map now. <laughs> yeah. And, and I love Walterboro. I, I really do. As you know, one of my uh, career cases was in Walterboro that we solved a murder after 35 years. And, um, and I do love Walterboro. I've been over there so much, and I have friends there, and, and I have professional friends there, and, um, investigative friends there, and, it, and it, it, it's been dear to my heart. Well, let's take a look at the trial. Um, we are recording this on really the tail end of one of the most dramatic 24-hour periods in your area's history, the verdict was announced last night, and the sentence was announced this morning, just a, a few hours ago. So we are really kind of right on the the edge of um, you know of this of this occasion. Uh, you have seen a lot of investigations over the years. You have participated in them, contributed to them. When you look at Alex's trial. What are some of the key differences that you see compared to how they were done in years past and how this particular investigation was conducted? Okay, I've been going for 20 years, 21 years, and um, technology has just taken over. Uh, and back in my day, it was more hands-on. So we would go to the scene, we'd kind of bring the scene back in the sled, the evidence back in the sled. I didn't see too much evidence that they, I mean, I saw evidence that they gathered that went back to sled, but then there was some evidence that could have been gathered that, that they probably didn't, but at the time that they were doing the crime scene investigation, that first night, they may not have looked at Alex as a suspect. And and so, you know, the thing about the clothes, they said his clothes were clean and they smelled good. And from what I understand, there was no blood spatter on the clothes he was wearing. But then there was a question about the other clothes. Um, they did take the shirt and the, the shorts in, but they never found the other clothes and I've got to admit, Alex Murdoch, he knew what they would be looking for, and apparently he knew how to get rid of it. And um, one of the uh, experts that testified, I actually, he actually, um, Kenny Kinsey, Dr. Kenny Kinsey, he actually was in, spent time in my photography lab back in the years when I was there, uh, kind of like an intern when, when he was starting out. And um, I, I noticed in his testimony, he went back to old school sometime. And as he said, you know, there's a shoe print on the floor, bloody shoe print that wasn't photographed and if it should have been, to me, it should have been, even if it belonged to Paul or whoever it belonged to or belonged to nobody. 
you know, you can you can eliminate it. Or it might have belonged to somebody, but you have to find the shoes too. Uh, but that wasn't doing, and and I wasn't at the scene, so I I, I really can't say uh, what was done. But our guys used to, like I said, they were if they saw a shoe printing sand, they would do a plastic cast of it, bring it back to headquarters, and and I would photograph it. And I understand there was a lot of shoe prints and all around this scene. And again, I wasn't there, so I couldn't tell. But but we, I, I don't think our guys would have let everyone that went into that scene. I, I it, that was just something to me. But again, it's everything's changed since I was there. But they didn't do that back in my day. It's interesting, isn't it? Because now you have the kind of evidence that can be collected on the actual premises, evidence from the scene. And then you also have this evidence, um, the technological evidence of the sort of the GPS tracking, which proved and the sort of cell phone communications, right, which um, really have kind of come into the fore in the last 20 years, that that kind of evidence proved pivotal here, didn't it, in the trial? The sort of the Snapchat video, the recordings, monitoring where people were at the time. I mean, do you think do you think Alex just, you know, was ignorant of that, overlooked that, you know, in the sort of panic and the and the haste? I mean, that's the one thing he couldn't destroy, right? Right. <laughs> I think that I think Alex knew a lot about it because you know, he tried to open Paul's phone and you tried to open Maggie's phone as as the testimony went, I do believe that he knew a lot about this, but he didn't know the extensive part of where they could almost trace every footstep of him. And I'm sure he's testified in court about this too, you know, when when even back when he was... um, doing his court proceedings on one of his cases, I'm sure he brought in cell phone data, and I don't know about the OnStar back then, but um, I would think OnStar would be there. And, and he, had to, he had to use the telephone data and all, too, to make his case. So he, he knew about all that. He also knew how to get rid of evidence, I think. He also knew how to get rid of his clothes, and I still can't get my head around that, but... Um, he knew how to do that because, you know, the lack of evidence sometimes tells you something. The lack of his clothes, the lack of blood on his clothes, that tells its own story as well. The lack of them not finding the guns. Right. The murder weapons themselves. They found ammunition, which matched the, uh, you know, the, the sort of the weapons that were, that were fired, but they didn't actually find the weapons themselves. Yep, and and that was a big point, too, because the shell casings they found outside the door and the shell casings they found at the crime scene, I mean, they they were a match or either shot from a gun, like they said, um, with the same specs to them. Now, uh, take us, uh, I know, of course, you were not at that scene, but in a scene like it, um, take us through the step of, it, say for the shell casings in particular, they are 
are they photographed first where they are found to preserve sort of placement and then brought back to sled or are they just brought back to sled first and then kind of reconstructed thereafter? They should have been photographed when they saw the shell casings, wherever they were. And we used, um, we did a 90 degree angle so it would be perpendicular with a scale in it. Our guys put a scale in everything. And that is the way when it comes back to me that if they need to do an exact size on it, the scale is in the suspected cartridges. And then if they have the real cartridges, then I can do a one-to-one of each one and you see how it matches up. But it has to be the exact size in order to make sure it's in the exact inch or in the exact corner or whatever. It has to be that exact size. So that's the reason they put, um, they should put rulers in there. In this case, I, I don't know um, I don't remember, but they should take photographs at the scene, and then possibly when they get back to do the analysis, of course, they'll take photographs then too as well. But um, you should photograph the scene exactly how it is when you got you get there and all the evidence, because that's the beauty of photography. Um, it shows exactly how the assailant left it and film as we used and now digital can be filed and it can be worked on later on. You can go back. You can use those crime scene photographs to actually kind of reconstruct a crime scene, but everything should be photographed. Our guys started at the... Um, signpost outside and they they just walked on in and took photographs of everything i'm curious because you know you have described how canny how savvy you know alex uh is you know how he's sort of always thinking about the um you know the possibilities and trying to stay a step ahead of you know law enforcement and that kind of stuff what what is your approach when you encounter a crime scene that you suspect may have been manipulated by the very perpetrator, right? So if Alex is trying to kind of place something in a way that leads to a different conclusion than what actually happened, how how are you able to kind of, um, you know, uh, remove that filter, so to speak, or, you know, kind of take that layer of... of um, I don't even know what the word is, you know, but like, how do you... How do you uh, remove his influence, which was added after the actual murder. Well, again, I didn't go to the crime scenes unless they needed specialized photography. Our investigators went there, and then we um, we got together when they brought him back, and and I was a part part of it when they brought it back. But I didn't do the original investigation. We had that investigative team to do that. Well, you kind of look at things and um, if anything is out of place or where it's not supposed to be such as you know they they kind of elaborated on that hose being out of place and and that's one thing 
And when you talk to the witnesses like they did, they said, no, that hose was on, wrapped up real nice on it. And then when, when I think in the picture, maybe the kennel picture, anyway, it was out of place. Um, so you, you look for anything that's out of place. And, and they asked Alex, too, um, is there anything out of place? And he said, no, not particularly. And uh, they would have to talk to other witnesses, though, if they saw something that they saw was maybe out of place. They would talk to other witnesses like they did the, the dog handler and ask him about okay, how about this hose? Where is it supposed to be? You, again, you can take those photographs even after you're away from the crime scene and you can reconstruct the crime scene from it just like Dr. Kenny Kinsey did. And I think, I think the um, defense had one too that kind of reconstructed. Of course, they were not parallel with each other, but... Um, just anything that's that's out of place and change your habits during the day, just like they talked to him about, change your habits. That's something that, that you really need to look at. This case, uh, I mean, all, all trials of this nature, you know, they live and die by the evidence that's presented. And you've mentioned um, sort of the blood spatter um, on the T-shirt and maybe in one or two other spots, you've mentioned the sort of technology and the cell phones. Were there any other uh, evidentiary issues that really stood out for you as you were watching this trial, either that came out of the testimony or just things that they were presenting, like angles of gunshots or, you know, kind of the uh, what was searched, what was not searched. I mean, was there any kind of, as, as you're following this whole saga along, were there any like real red flags, you know, that jumped out for you? My first red flag, and I had heard this in a po podcast before, and I, I don't, you know, I'd say, okay, that might be right, but I'm going to watch the trial and see the positive evidence or, or the circumstantial evidence or whatever. And yes, when I saw, I had heard there was a video that Paul had. I had no idea what it was, and I don't know if anybody had any idea what it was until the trial. But the first red flag for me, as I told you, um, there's no threat to the community. The second red flag was when I watched that video and I heard Alex's voice in there and I said, oh, hell, I said, that is Alex's voice. He has a distinct voice. That is his voice. He was at the scene and I had already um, seen some of the testimony on the timeline. And when we heard, when I heard that voice and I went, oh my goodness, I said he was there like two, a minute or so, and he lied about it. And that's one thing our investigators don't like is somebody lying to them, somebody lying to law enforcement. It's like um, if, if you find a fingerprint or a shoe print or a footprint at a crime scene, um, and you get a suspect, and you question them, and you you know you you're really looking at this. He's he's kind of a firm suspect here. 
And when they talked to him, one of the first things they would ask was, were you ever in this house? Were you ever at this scene where it happened? And if they say no, and you've already matched their shoes up to the shoe print, match their footprint up to the footprint, fingerprint up to the fingerprint, and now DNA, well, how do you, um, how do you tell us you weren't there when we have your fingerprints? What, how did you? You're digging your own grave. I mean, you're in trouble at that point, and you are. How did they get that? Yeah. I mean, we even had people, we even had suspects tell us, well, you know, that is my shoe print. But somebody must have stole that shoe out of the closet and wore it that night. I am, like I said, they don't like lies, and that would be the first lie. In my thirty-seven-year-old case um, that was just solved, they asked him, the the person, and have you ever been in Elaine's house? And he said no, and of course. Chief Johnson asked him, well, how do you explain that your fingerprints and your palm prints were in that house? Well, they knew he lied. And that was, I mean, they pretty much had him then. They knew he lied. Bagged and tagged. Bagged and tagged. But it, but it's it's that simple with the finger. I mean, fingerprints are wonderful. They'll never go away because nobody has the same fingerprints. But identical twins do have the same DNA. So if if you find DNA at a crime scene and you think one of these twins did it, you pray for a fingerprint. <laughs> so I mean that's that's the way you differentiate that because no two fingerprints alike. But yeah, for, and catching him in a lie. And when I saw that video, I went, "Oh my God!" So that was number one. That was number one, and. Then him having no blood on his clothes, uh, they couldn't find any. I think they found a little spot of blood and DNA maybe on the steering wheel. Uh, but that pretty much tells you if he did this, he changed clothes. But I tell you, he covered it up. I've got to admit that, boy. He cleaned up or whatever he did because they didn't find any blood, and that had to be a bloody scene. I myself wonder if he didn't change clothes down there and drive home in that gar- golf cart naked. <laughs> yeah, that, that was one of my thoughts. That was one of my thoughts too. But he did a good job of getting rid of the blood and the bloody clothes. But I mean, of course, they had their ideas of how he did that. Yeah, it makes you wonder if. You know, one day down the road, some of that evidence will, in fact, turn up on the property, you know, on the land. You're thinking, you're thinking just like me. You know. There are, hunters, there are hunters in that area every day. If he threw a gun out in the woods or he threw clothes out in the woods or even even a, the waterways down there, sometimes they dry up. I said, one day somebody might say, God, look at this gun here, you know. Yeah, what's that shotgun doing in the bottom of the bayou? Let me go well, check they, that out. Up it comes, and then there we and, are. And you don't know where he put his clothes. I mean, he could have thrown them in somebody's dipsy dumpster on his way or, or whatever. And 
the next day they were gone. But he he did a good job with that now. Well, before we switch gears, let me ask you, what did I got two questions for you. Number one, what did you make of the uh, the two shooter theory? You know, the there's somebody else up, you know, one on one hill and the other down downhill and that kind of what, what when that first was floated, what was your take? I didn't I didn't think I didn't think it at all. I, I knew from the past, as I told you, these people down there are hunters. This family was a big they had they were living in a hunting lodge, you know, that's what they called it. And they were big hunters. They had guns all over the place. And once I saw this video and put him down there and the timeline came in, I said, man, he could have done this. He was an expert with guns. And he may have even carried the guns down on the golf cart. I don't know if they ever decided how he got them there, but he could have gone down on the golf cart with Maggie and Paul and, you know, let's put the guns in here, Paul. Might be able to kill us a pig. You get us a hog, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And if he had those guns in that golf cart when he was there, and, and they say Paul was shot first, he could have shot Paul and Maggie, like they said, to came running to her son, her baby, and then he just picked up the other one and turned around and shot her. Now, here's one thing I found interesting, too, with Dr. Kenny Kinsey. He found a pattern on the back of Maggie's thigh. And he saw this. He didn't go to the crime scene. He was an expert brought in, and that's that's the one I, I told you I, I've known for years. And uh, he's actually from my home county, Orangeburg County here in South Carolina. But when I was listening to him and I heard that, he said there was a pattern on the back of Maggie's thigh. And he told how... He took it. It appeared to be mud, and in the it, it had a design like the tire on the Polaris the ATV. And boy, I, I just zoomed into that because that's what we did at Sled so much. And even when he was up there too, his two weeks, you know, we were doing some of that. But he decided to. He said, "This is a good pattern trait here," is what we called it. And he took photographs of the ATV, tires on the ATV, and the photograph of the pattern on her leg. And, of course, again, you have your scales in there so you can do it one-to-one and make the pattern one-to-one and make the tire one-to-one. You enlarge it to that size. And he was able to overlay it, and with being a certainty, he said that, that pattern on the back of Maggie's leg was the impression of the, it had the designs of the tire. Of it the was ATV. a match. He got a match. Yeah. Correct. And, and there again, he explained how you had to reverse one. He, he talked in good plain language and common sense, but then again, he was back from my era. And, and I, I, could, I could follow this a lot more. But that would tell you, too, that at some point her leg came in contact 
with that tire on the ATV. Now, whether it was when she was shot and she fell back or she was walking back to get away, but at some point, her thigh got in contact with that ATV. And he did that from the photographs. I think it was the autopsy photographs. And um, I, I kind of want to say that he said there wasn't a scale in the... Uh, seems like to me he said there wasn't a scale, so he got as close as he could um, with with his photograph of the tire and that scale to to the um, the pattern trait on the back of... It's nice to see a little old-fashioned gumshoe and come into fruition, isn't it? Tell me about it. And he even went as far as to say... Back in the old days, we used to just reverse the negative and just turn the negative upside down on one or the other. And, of course, now you can do this digital. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. I mean, I've done some of that digital, too. So. Very satisfying. Very, very satisfying. Mm-hmm. But that, to me, was a good piece of evidence, too, because it placed her at the crime scene. It placed her there, and either she backed up on it or however it got there, somehow that tire came in contact with her thigh. You know, the um, that kind of hard evidence uh, stands against the claim by the defense that, you know, all the state had here was circumstantial, just circumstantial was, you know, the, the sort of the... And, you know, you've got to look at that as circumstantial too, I guess. Although it was direct, you you might have to look at that as circumstantial here too, because they could say all day long it doesn't match up, but he had it matching up. Well, that's what I want to ask you: is that you have this kind of? Um, I, I think that the defense was correct in the sense that yes, there was mostly circumstantial evidence. Sure, okay, I'll agree. Um, but cases right. cases have been made on circumstantial evidence. A lot of cases have been made, but you've got to work with it. You've got to work with it. And they work with it. And that's that's the question is is sort of, you know, in some cases, it's circumstantial is not enough to, you know, to convict. But in this case, it was. Why do you think that it was here for Alex Murdoch? Oh, my goodness. Like, they tra- and, and just these digital records, too, of the phone and the OnStar, they traced him around everywhere they had as many steps as he took and him i think it was one question there is he had a lot of steps after he got back to the scene when he was calling 911 or something he was probably just twirling around in circles you know talking to him whatever but that that technology it can trace your steps it can trace your car. It can trace your mileage. It can trace your speed. And uh, there's just no denying that. Uh, it may be a little off, but it's not that much off. And, uh, I mean, in that video, I mean, they would say that they might say that's circumstantial, but that video had Alex on there like two minutes before it's too, close. Death. it's too close. Mm-hmm. It is too close. But they have all close. the technology there. And then you can, again, go back to the photographs, and you can actually um, reconstruct that photograph and show the angles of the bullets um, and um, 
it's it's just wonderful technology and old school, but it still takes a human to make it work. There has to be a human there to do all this, to make it work. And they had them. They had the good experts. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. Well, Rita, I can't thank you enough for your perspective on this. It truly is fascinating. And I, I know that uh, I have learned a lot hearing, um, hearing your expertise come to light, to sh- shed light on this particular trial. I want to bring in a voice who has been uh, waiting in the wings here, um, our esteemed producer, Bill Huffman, who has been following this trial for quite some time. This is a major case, and Bill, of course, is the host of his own show called Who Killed and has a, um, a number of reactions to, to Alex Murdoch's convictions. I mean, Bill, first question I have for you is, uh, did you have any doubt about this verdict or did you were you were you too thinking maybe hung jury retrial you know kind of extended deliberation where what was your take on the verdict well first uh thanks for having me on the show and you know being in the background all the time and not being able to voice my two cents it's uh (laughs) it does it it does great on you a little bit but thank you very much for letting me uh voice uh a couple uh comments here uh i actually thought this was uh this was a slam dunk in my opinion when it comes to a circumstantial case i've looked at other cases that have people have been convicted on a lot less stuff than what they had on him and i mean i think rita set out basically laid out the digital footprint with what they have nowadays the ability to track your every move basically uh it's not surprising to me at all was I surprised that the verdict came back so quickly? Yes, but I think if if you looked at the trial, the prosecution really did, and I have a, qu- a couple questions about how they did this. The way that they portrayed the case and portrayed Alec being in this situation where he's addicted to so many drugs, which, Rita, did you find it odd that, like, I don't know, he just doesn't seem like a drug addict in the sense that he would be taking 60 pills a day. I mean, in my opinion, what my image is of somebody like that, I guess he doesn't fall into that. Do you think they were exaggerating that to try to get some sympathy or empathy towards Alec? My personal opinion, yes. But I've never done drugs. I really don't know anybody that's ever taken that much drugs. I think there was one comment that, he said he took like a thousand a day. I think you would be dead if you took a thousand a day. Now I don't know. This is just my opinion. I know um, some people who say they know drug addicts that that um, they don't know what they're doing or everything, and I can I can understand that too. But he just did not 
fit that to me. Well, it, I, I didn't buy I didn't buy that. Sure, maybe he was on drugs, and he had some opioids in his system after the um, suicide attempt, uh, so-called suicide attempt. And uh, they did find some opioid drugs there, but he picked up on that real good, and that's the reason he lied about the not being at the kennel because he got paranoid. No, I don't buy I, that. I, I don't either, and I don't. I don't see how you can do and function the way that he was and conniving the way that he was. Not even regardless of the murders, the financial crimes, how he was able to do that while he's all doped up. I mean, this isn't like we're not talking cocaine or amphetamines. We're talking about opioids. I mean, this is this is mm-hmm. stuff that puts you out. I, I I didn't buy it. I think there was a lot of people that didn't buy it. The jury didn't buy it either because they could see him. Generally, when somebody has an addiction like that, they suffer major, major withdrawals and Absolutely. And and you just hit it right there. He said he was in detox for seven days. And then we don't know where he was. They say he was there, but I don't know if they really know where he was. But for seven days, you would still have withdrawals after that, I would think. And, and you think it, they were using this to justify his stealing of clients money Absolutely. and that's where my next question goes is where does the financial aspect of this case go now is it still pursued because i mean there's still victims out there they may go to trial now it could be possible they said you know we don't need to go to trial on this but he's got one or two other cases that Slade is looking into now, you know, the Gloria Satterfield and definitely Stephen Smith. You hadn't heard much about that since they said they reopened it. But those aren't resolved yet either. Is Stephen the one that's connected to the buster? Yes. Yeah. Like, so, supposedly. Supposedly. So yeah. it's just he creepy. Was, he was in the same class as Buster, I heard. Okay. And then, of course, you know, they kind of related that they might have... Uh, I had had a good relationship. It's it, very interesting how they all seem to cross paths with death in some way or an, another. And in, in your history of working with SLED, did, did you ever see anything that you thought was not on the up and up in the decades that you worked there? You know, because of their, you know, pull. With SLED? You mean the Murdochs in particular, the Murdochs influence? Yeah, the Murdochs, yeah. In, yeah, like the prosecution, you know, being able to prosecute and just kind of having running roughshod over like the local authorities. I mean, you're basically the boss. Well, you hear that. I never, you know, I, I, I wasn't involved in any of that. I never saw anything, but I mean, we've heard it. And you ask a local, I'm sure some of the locals will say yes too. And, you know, don't second guess the locals because they want to live there. But um, as far as me, no investigations that I knew of, or even our guys did, I don't remember doing that. But yes, there is speculation out there that that could be too. Because I just wonder how far the apple fell from the tree. It just seems like with their great grandfather being the prosecutor, you know, all, all the you know the family tree, we see it. You know, it's all prosecutors, and then Alex is a little different 
path. And I mean, he was still successful, but um, inter- it's, it's just very dynasty, soap opera, low country. It's, it's got a lot of, I think there's a reason it captured the national attention. I mean, it just really shows what power and greed and... They could get away with it. And, and they got away. Alex got away with it. He did. For so long. And, and, and you're right. You know, it was apple falling from a tree. He got away with it. And uh, I think that dynasty has ended now. <laughs> it, it sounds like because... What happens with the Mallory Beach and, you know, the Paul boat accident stuff? And I know that you know, can't do anything with the prosecution or anything like that. But, I mean, these people lost a child and... It just seems so unfair that he won't face any... I mean, I know he faced the ultimate punishment, I guess, because he was taken out by his father, but he still committed a crime, and they all seem to be just a bunch of troublemakers. And I don't understand how this side of the family became such a, I guess, an enigma, you know, compared to the rest of the people. Well, as far as as that boat case... I think that pretty much started all this and people looking at it. I remember when it happened, and I myself said, they're not going to do anything with this because it's a Murdoch. Um, That was just my impression from hearing the dynasty and knowing about the dynasty, you know, knowing about how powerful they were when I worked with SLED even back, what, 20 years ago now. And 25 years ago, but and it didn't. It didn't go anywhere. And you think about, I don't believe in coincidences. I believe in um, conveniences, maybe, is the word for it. And he, Alex, was looking at the lawsuit with Paul and the boat case. Three days later was when it was going to court and he killed them three days before it went to court. Is that convenience? Then bless Pete, his daddy died a couple days, three days after all this happened. It's a fascinating it's a fascinating sequence of events because you know, in one one frame has everything lined up perfectly and then the other frame of course says no, it was all just co- coincidental. I think I think one thing that this trial has shown is that you know, anyone with a bone of common sense in their body just doesn't accept that coincidental narrative either. I think Rita, you are you're absolutely, you know, you right that. about that. Well, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely spot on. And, you know, it is interesting. I did read one report which speaks to Bill's question about his legal vulnerability for these other cases. And it does suggest, The Guardian was reporting, that he still could be charged for those murders. Yes, yes, but, they, I think, I think, uh, but the state has not yet gotten enough evidence to prove, you know, his involvement in them. And sort of even if they did, since he's already facing life in prison— uh, it would just be kind of up to the DA's discretion as to whether or not they would add these charges onto his, you know, current situation, right? They don't necessarily have to. He's not coming out. <laughs> right? this, is, this is true, but hopefully they will investigate some, you know, for the family's sake and, and to maybe bring, a, I don't believe in closure either, but to bring some peace to the families. And, and, and I do hope they do that because, you know, they have opened 
back up all of these supposedly you know that's been out and they've opened these up and hopefully they will go back and investigate that too who knows what you might find <laughs> you might find something out about about this case too you didn't know which we don't need that now but it'd be like finding that gun in the woods yeah can i can i play devil's advocate real quick and ask bill the same question that i asked you rita you, you know i mean there is always a chance that somebody with an exterior motive, you know, that the third the third person, the third party, you know, that there was an individual out there who had a motive to come onto their land and conduct these murders and try to, you know, gain some financial leverage, you know, you know, all this, all the different kind of mo- rationales. And so, I mean, Bill, did, did you ever did you ever see anything in the defense's um, case that you found even remotely plausible or like that you felt like the prosecution did not adequately respond to you know trying to see both sides here right personally i feel like they they did a decent job setting up the drug dealer drug perspective and i think that's kind of why they ran with the whole addiction and the opioids and and you know it's the hot topic in the country you know an epidemic going on and oh let's just throw him let's throw alec in there and um he'll be fine we'll say he's got this problem and then it's he's spending this much money on drugs and then he owes this much money to a drug dealer and hey you know drug dealers kill for less than you know let's say they owe ten thousand dollars you gotta pay them you'll kill them you gotta pay them and so you know it's it's very plausible that that was a plausible idea but again it was kind of a concocted story to fit the circumstances so it's more like you're saying okay yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's run with that aspect of it with the drug addiction because that brings in shady characters opposed to him committing these financial crimes, whereas that's just him just being shady. Whereas this brings in other people that could potentially cause harm. Was it a last-ditch effort to really kind of distract the jury? Yeah, of course it was. I mean, this guy, this guy was dead to rights in my opinion. Everybody suspected him. Rita, we had you on pretty much right after he was shot. Yes, I don't. Gosh, you take you take me back. I don't remember. So this had happened before I was on before. And you were like, "Oh yeah, he's totally involved." And I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if he killed Paul and Maggie. So you you nailed this. I mean, you called it. You called it. You called it because I mean, it was. I think you were on in. July of last year or of 2021 and or August and yeah it was it was yeah you had your two cents and you were damn right you were right on the money <laughs> you know I, I've got to tell you this one of my high school boys he lives out in Hilton Head and he actually worked with Russell Lafitte one of the one of the other attorneys that I think he just got sentenced to what I don't know if he's sentenced yet but anyhow he got convicted and um, Fred called me up and he said, well, Rita, he said, are you going to write a book on the Murdochs? And I went, yeah, I can saw on, on Alex Murdoch. He said, are you going to write a book on Alex Murdoch? And I said, yeah, it'd be three words. He did it. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, one, I have one last question for you, and that is, 
it was interesting to see the press conference last night after yes. the verdict and mm-hmm. to see uh, the state attorney general and everybody. It was, it was like a celebration of the lives of Paul and Maggie, but it was also like a, like a celebration of like, we took down the king. <laughs> like, like we took down the king, you know, like, the, like they're no more in power. You know, we cut the head off the snake and or the dragon or whatever you want to reference. And it just seemed like a celebration opposed to uh, sometimes you just don't you don't really see that very often. And the attorney general, the state attorney general, you know, I guess he questioned one of the final witnesses. And and that's just is that a pretty common thing to do or is that? Like, everybody wanted to have a hand in this. Uh, it's not a common thing to do, I don't think. You know, they're happy. But there's never been a case in South Carolina like this case. If you would take it back, it would have to be Pee Wee Gaskins. And you know Pee Wee Gaskins. He went through South Carolina and he killed and for years and years and years. But there's never been a case in South Carolina like this. And that's another thing. The sled investigators have never had to investigate a case like this. This has just been a snowball effect that one thing after the other, and they had to find out uh, what was right and what was wrong. And uh, I think they were just celebrating that we finally got justice in South Carolina one time on a case this big. And it was this powerful family because they they did a lot of good work sled and, and the state and attorney general but um they've just never had a case in south carolina like this not in my lifetime except for maybe peewee gaskins and uh, his wasn't even this extensive i don't think because he'd tell them where a body was they knew he was guilty it's just amazing how quickly they turned it around and already have a conviction and sentence. I think the people, you know, Walterboro, the people down there, they know about guns. A lot of them hunt. They know about all-terrain vehicles. They know about dog kennels. They've all got them. And, and I do believe they put together... Um, this didn't have to be two shooters. And we know how, how Alex and those loved hunting and they knew guns upside down and backwards. And I just really believe these jurors and they were the local people who had lived in this um, dynasty, knowing that, that the Murdochs were called the dynasty for years. And of course, they'd heard some the the media before, and uh, I think they just knew how how it worked down there. They were down to earth people. I mean, what was the first thing that put Alex at the Kindle? It was a simple video of a dog's tail, and done by Paul for a friend of his, that video put Alex at the kennels and uh, 
that dog's tail, if it wouldn't have been for that dog's tail, we wouldn't have that video maybe, you know, something that simple. You know, Rita, you think you nail it right here because Southern folks, we know when someone is trying to pull the wool over our eyes, mm-hmm. we can just mm-hmm. tell, you know, there's a little, little hair on the back of our neck that stands up, you know, there's just, you know, there's a, there's, you don't need all the fancy degrees in the world from all the fanciest institutions. You can have someone who knows dogs, knows guns, and, you know, knows trucks, and they can be absolutely every bit as much of an expert as any witness that anybody else will call. And you can just, you know, it's very, uh, uh, I, I too get a little annoyed, you know, when there's a sort of outside perception of, oh, those, those dumb jurors, they wouldn't know how to, you know, add two and two together. And it's like, well, hold on, you know, like we, we actually have a little bit more uh, credibility than that. It was interesting. There were two jurors that were holding out at the very end. The Guardian yep, reported so that there were that. yeah, two who were kind of unsure, you know, in the last moments, but it was the cell phone uh, evidence that ultimately persuaded them. And they've gone on the record, you know, to say so. And it's just... And they had so much. I mean, all of this testimony, too, that's back and forth and back and forth of the same thing over and over. It was confusing. I was really glad to see um, the prosecution have a PowerPoint presentation there and kind of put it together, put that timeline together and didn't have all the rest of that stuff that they had to look through two and three pages of cell phone records. He had the important parts of the timeline there with that. And uh, graphics are wonderful. That's why I love photography. So, I mean, it tells a story. And then he simplified it down in that PowerPoint presentation, which... They did call back for a monitor, and I'm wondering if that's what they were looking at, or either the video again, too. And that just kind of simplified it right there after all the testimony they'd had on it for hours and hours and hours. But I thought I thought that was a good point. You have to get that timeline so that the jurors can understand this. And a lot of them was probably like me. They didn't know that all the extensive cell phone records you could get to you know, follow people around and um, own star, but they know it now. Let me let me bring one other thing in too. Please. This is something that that I've always picked up. My the psychological profile that Sled taught me this. I think, and he was amazing. He could talk a worm out of its hole, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and he he was he was amazing, but he he said, you listen at the um, suspect, suspected suspect talk, and he's going to tell in that story sometime his truth. And Alex, you know, don't, as my mama would say, he didn't have the truth in him. But uh, Alex said a few things over time, and one of them was that when he testified... He said, yes, I lied about the dog kennel, being at the dog kennel. He said, but I would never kill my wife, Maggie, or my son, Papa. He would never do that. When he was talking to the first officers on the scene, he kept, how many times did he say, are they dead, are they dead, are they dead? To me, that showed he wanted to make sure they were dead so they couldn't talk. Possibly. My thoughts. 
and he kept telling officers he would cooperate in any way. But he later kept asking, "Where is it in the investigation? Are y'all looking for something?" And that's kind, you know, that's kind of common for our family. But then again, um, they never demanded Sled to find out who killed him. They never demanded them to, okay, you've got to find out who did this horrible, horrible thing. And um, let's see, when his sister-in-law was, Amaga's sister testifies on the stand that Alex said, whoever did this had planned it for a long time. And then Alex's word on the stand, he suggests I lied about being at the Kindle, Kennels. I was there, but did not kill Maggie and Paul. The boat wreck was the reason Papa and Maggie were killed. I can tell you for a fact that the personal people who did what I saw on June the 7th, they hated Paul Murdoch, and they had an anger in their hearts. And that is the only reason they could be mad with Paul and hate him like that. And then when he tests uh, his sentencing yesterday, he says, I lied and I continue to lie. And then he followed that with, I would never hurt my wife Maggie or my son Papa. His quick reply was another lie. And there is his truth. His truth, as you say. That yeah. is true. That is true. He actually told some truth in there, like... Um, whoever, whoever killed Paul had a hate for him and telling his sister-in-law, whoever did this had planned it for a long time. And he had to plan a lot of that for the way he got rid of evidence. And I don't know how long it did it, but I don't think he could have come up with it that fast. Do you think he had any help? I don't. No. I don't. Like, you know, just, I'm just thinking of like the, the the bag like the oj simpson you know the bag when he comes back from uh chicago and that bag was never f- seen again and you know the mystery of what was in it and i was just wondering if there was ever any thought that somebody that maybe he knew took all that stuff you know the guns and the clothes and and got rid of it for him but i don't, I don't, you don't think, think so. so yeah and that would probably come out at trial anyway yeah. so yeah i I don't think so. And even with that blue raincoat, too, you know, um, he took that in that night. Why did he leave that there? Uh, that's that's a question. Why did he leave that there? Maybe he thought they would never go over to Almeida and, and process that scene, too. But uh, he could have got rid of that along with whatever else he was getting rid of. But. I guess some things just you're going, oh my God, you know, he finally, he, he made a mistake here, he made a mistake here. Uh, just some just, you can't wrap your head around it. You know, the web of lies eventually always unravels. And, you know, we are so grateful that uh, justice here was served. Now, he goes to a, if, he, if it had just been the financial crimes he'd been convicted of, he would have gone to a low-security prison. But since this is a murder charge, he's going to a high-security state penitentiary. And I wanted to ask you, Rita, is that the same state penitentiary that Elaine's killer uh, is currently at? No, Elaine's killer is in a mental institution in Columbia. But it's, it's secured 
you know, it's secured. He can never get out of there. They have bars on the windows. It's just like a jail, but uh, they have to deal with the mental issue. Department of Corrections ain't pretty. I'm happy to hear that, even though that's like bad that, that, you know, people are in jail, but you can't put people in jail and not deal with the mental illnesses that have put them there because you're going to end up with... Yeah, the Department of Corrections is a complete different facility where they they house the bad guys, the murderers, but also some, you know, the druggies too, the Department of Correction is. And we have, the main one is in Columbia. That would be the one he would probably go to. But we have other um, Department of Corrections smaller in different counties here in South Carolina. Yep. Be interesting to see what what his legal team tries to wangle for him. You know, um, well, you never know. You never know. You never know. You never know. And uh, I think too, after this happened, when they put him in rehab, you know, he was in, he was probably in a nice room and all in rehab, but I, I don't. He was in the. Jail in Columbia, I believe, for his financial crimes, and then they brought him down here for the trial. So I think he's been standing the Colladon County Jail down here. And uh, that's not the finest place to be. I'll I'll, I'll tell you this. I don't think any county jail is a good place to be. uh, I think you've said volumes there. I I think any any jail is a bad place to be, you know, just, just. Society wise, but you've made a bad choice. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing when I saw this yesterday, and it, it just grind as my mama said it again, grind my gizzard to see him not being in shackles. But I can understand the judge doing that, but then him covering up his handcuffs walking in the courthouse. When that happened yesterday, I said, He'll go out of here in handcuffs and he'll come back in handcuffs tomorrow, and he ain't gonna have his nice clothes on. That'll be one set of clothes he really wants to get rid of. Oh, yeah. But he ain't going to do it. <laughs> There's yeah. no way he can do it. What? But that, that did my heart good. Yeah. What an end. What an end. So the last question that we have for you, Rita, you know, we always ask about aftermaths. Uh, we always ask about kind of where things go at the end of a case like this. And the question that I have for you is what what ripple effects do you see this this verdict having for Walterboro and the surrounding counties, for the whole area that used to be under the Murdoch thumb. I mean, what what do you see happening back home? They will go on living. They will get back to living. This will always be there. You know, it's history now. Not that they wanted it, but it's history now. It'll always be there. But the people in Walterboro, the people in South Carolina are strong. Just like when they come back from a hurricane, and we've had many of them, they are strong, they love their community, and they don't like people doing bad in their community. So I think they'll bounce back real good. It'll be talked about forever, and there'll be books about it, I guess, and it'll be in South Carolina's tainted history for years, but we have a lot of them in tainted history. And uh, not that we want it, but it's there. But Walterboro will be fine. They'll be Walterboro proud, just like South Carolina's proud now. Thanks as always for listening. 
Our guest has been Rita Schuler, author of The Low Country Murder of Gwendolyn Elaine Fogel, A Cold Case Solved, published by the History Press. To order a copy of the book, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org shop slash crime dash capsule. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, especially for sitting in today and sharing his insights. Thanks as well to our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and is a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com. <laughs> <laughs>